Welcome again to the Comic Book Historian Podcast. I'm Alex Grand with my co-host Jim Thompson. Today we have an interview with an incredible inker of the Bronze and Marvel Age, Joseph Rubinstein, who has inked probably more artists and more characters than anyone in history. Joseph has been working in comics since the 1970s. Joseph, thank you so much for being here today with us. You're welcome. I, I didn't know I was bronzy, but okay. <laughs> I'll go with it. Jim's going to start off on your early years, so go ahead and take it away, Jim. What we like to do is to get into the, the very beginning, and I, I know you were, you were born in Germany. When did you come to the U.S.? We didn't know it was Germany. <laughs> so apparently when Germany lost the war, they were forced to take the, the, the town I was born in. We thought I was Polish, so I got naturalized in 72. Um, I see. It, it was a place called uh, Breslau which, as it turns out, by pure coincidence, one of my favorite artists of all time, Adolf von Menzel, was uh, born in. So um, he's, he's the only Adolf I ever actually liked. Just mm -hmm. That makes sense. <laughs> uh, though I never made Adolf Zucker, but I'm sure he was a swell dancer. Um, <laughs> so when did I come to this country? Well, we went from Israel, and then I think I was five when I came over, but some people seem to think I was three, but I haven't. I haven't looked at it that deeply. <laughs> so. Some of the people that we talk with talk about uh, one common trait is that they are all early readers. Were you, were you an early reader? Were you reading in, what language were you reading in first? I came to the U.S. not speaking the language, and my older cousin had a pile of comic books, I think primarily the Superman family stuff. So... No, I wasn't reading it. I guess, uh, but I, I guess I got enthralled by the pictures and the colors and what have you. Um, and then, like many little kids, I started to draw my own comic books on lined paper with crayon when I was five or six. Um, but and to more directly answer your question, when um, my reading comprehension was tested over the years, I was usually far above my grade. Uh, level because I knew what the word imaginary meant from those comic books I was reading. Oh yeah, and and I love 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 to read. Unfortunately, I never do it anymore because I've got too much to do. <laughs> it's just like a crime against nature. What were your comic book years? When did you start? And I, I'm assuming that you you were a comic book fan. I was reading comic books from when I could read. And uh, even when I was see, Marvel and DC had an agreement in the golden old days of everybody would get a comp of everybody else's books. So we would get these big boxes filled with everybody's comic books. And then you'd sort through them and you'd see which ones you want to read and which ones you don't. Um, and I was certainly reading Watchmen and X-Men and Dark Knight. I guess by the, the 90s or so, I was less about traditional comic books or at least superhero comic books and more about like Will Eisner's stuff, more adult things that related more to philosophy, my life history, because uh -huh. when you spend your entire life, I, I know a lot of writers who, since they're always doing comic books, they've got to read a history book. They've got to get something substantial under their. Um, and with me, I watch TV all day long while I work and I do watch you know, reruns of Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Timeless. And and then occasionally i got to turn on a, a documentary and just get back to the real world. Right. Sure. Not that the real world is that great these days, but you got to be forearmed. Were you a, like a student of prior comic art? Did you study Golden Age artists and different ones for technique? 
or did you just kind of absorb it as you went along? No, no, no. I, I mean, you have to study. There's no sense in reinventing the wheel. And you find out that all the solutions to every problem you've ever had has already been dealt with. I worked over at uh, Neil Adams and Dick Giordano's studio. Right. Yeah, I went to the Art Students League in New York where I lived when I was 11. And then when I was 13, I got to work at the studio as a gopher with, uh, you know, making coffee and running errands and the like. I see. Um, and then when I had off time, I was studying the files. And um, Dick Giordano, who was a wonderful, wonderful man, would stop everything he was doing occasionally and just give me a little art lesson. Or, or I, I was really lucky in that I had um, access to original pencils and original inks and saw the process. And I didn't really understand what Neil and Dick were doing until I studied the people that Neil and Dick studied. Mm-hmm. And then it made sense. Um, and, you know... To this day, I still take art classes and painting and drawing. I still want to learn more and know there's a lot more to learn. So I'm always studying. And somebody asked me at a convention recently, what do I collect, figurines or action figures or whatever? And what I collect are books by artists who, you know, they have a compilation all of a sudden of Alex Raymond or Hal Foster. That's what I collect. I, you know, I have way, way, way too many books. So what year did you enter uh, Continuity Associates? What year was that, you think? When I was when I was thirteen, which was seventy one. Nineteen seventy one. And so, what was continuity like at that time? So it was basically Neil Adams, Dick Giordano. They started that. Tell us about the environment. Like, what what kind of environment was that? It was just three rooms, and if the client showed up, I had to get out of the main room and go to the uh, library. Eventually, they started to expand it. You know, their whole goal was comic books badly. There were no royalties. The, the rates were atrocious, and um, they were going to do advertising work and comic book advertising work. Slowly but surely, they expanded. They took over the the, the floor that they were renting rooms in, mm-hmm. and um, you know, prior to nineteen, uh, prior to the internet, prior to um, FedEx, everybody had to live in the tri-state New York area to deliver their work. I mean, like like once the Filipinos started happening, they would literally roll up 22 pages in as tight a tube as they possibly could and mail it in. Mm. But other than that, people had to deliver their work personally or certainly have their wife or boyfriend or whoever. whoever. And then when they were done, they'd go over to Continuity Associates because Neil was a a tremendous artist and a groundbreaker and there was an exciting place to be and consequently a lot of wonderful artists started to um, rent space there like Mm -hmm. Wally Wood and um, and Neil as they became less and less occupied or employed by um, the companies he'd start hiring people like Jack Sparling and Bill Drought Uh, Jack Abel had offices there that I used to assess Jack and I was Wally Woods' assistant. I was Russ Heath's assistant. It's just oh, really? whoever wow. needed help, I would I would get in there and and do some kind of work for them. No, what was your impression of Jack Abel? I, and I asked that because Howard Chaykin talked about him and how much how much fun he had with him. Yeah, a lot of people have that opinion of Jack, but Jack was generally a very depressed guy, and um, mm. I found myself he, like like he always worried about how am I going to pay for my retirement, and then of course wow. he died before had a retirement and and I found our relationship was me 
having to like sort of pump him up and go, Jack, it's not so bad, it's not so bad. Now, a lot of people loved him, and a lot of people thought he was funny, and he did tell great old stories. And, you know, I, I'm sure, I, I don't know how old Jack was when he died, but I'm sure I'm older than he was when I was there as a kid assistant. He was one of the old guys, and he had the old stories, and he knew the old people. And I don't think he much really approved of modern comic books much anyway. Milton Kniff and Hal Foster and Alex Raymond and Cy Barry, those were the real comic book artists and these new punks, these new kids. It's like, I don't get it. <laughs> you know, and that's sort of the <laughs> pattern of every generation of artists. Tell um, us about Wally Wood. How was working with him? Woody was a wonderful, sweet man. Um, he had a demon. He was an alcoholic. I'd, I'd never seen him drunk. Uh, he was very much trying to clean up his act when I knew him. And uh, he was wry and funny. Um, certainly, I idolized him because he's one of the all-time greats. Uh-huh. And then, you know, he got ill and, and things slid and, and then, you know, he died. And again, I look at the pictures of him and he looks 80 years old and I think he's five years younger than I am now when he died. Yeah, that's right. He wasn't that yeah. old, but he looked old. Yeah. You would have to rent out an auditorium to put all of Wally Wood's assistants and Dick Giordano's assistants in the same room because they all, both of them, used a great many people. I mean, for expediency's sake, because it's a lot of work to do a comic book and you need people to do the stuff that you don't have to do. But at the same time, you know, both Neil, uh, both Dick and, and Woody were very nurturing people and they taught you what you needed to know. And um, I did this background for what, uh, what I did was I assisted on the last two Sally Forth and Cannons, which was oh, yeah. a comic that he did right for the Overseas Weekly. Yeah, and, right. I've read those. Yeah, I mean, and what it what it consisted of was saying, okay, trace that head over there, trace this figure over here, ink this building. So it's not mm-hmm. like I can take any credit for having done the work. It's just mm-hmm. I, I put the lines down so Woody had something to work with. So um, so I'm doing this background and I'm using a ruler and I'm making it the straightest, most wonderful, perfectest thing that ever was. And I showed it to him, and he said, all the lines connect. I went, yeah. He says, don't do that again. Um, (laughs) And then he explained to me how to get the impression of reality by allowing things to be looser, for lines not to connect, for to have an impressionistic way of implying a background. So even though I don't think if if you look at my work, there's any trace of Woody stuff in it, a lot of the lessons he taught me are the basis for how I do my work today. Oh, that's really great to hear. So he was doing the Overseas Weekly stuff in that same area of space that Continuity Associates was in? Yeah. Oh, that's crazy. I never connected those two things. Russ was doing um, Sergeant Rock. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, Russ was, wow. was excellent, excellent work. I don't know that Russ ever did a bad job, but he was certainly doing some of the highlights of his career while he was at Continuity Associates. And all I did was like fill in black and, and touch up panel borders. But here's the interesting thing about Russ's technique. When you touch up panel borders, that means the little nicks that come out of the panel border, you have to clean them up with opaque white paint. Mm-hmm. But what Russ had me do is he would take a, a razor blade and a ruler and lightly score the outside of the panel and then scoop out that nick because mm-hmm. he just wanted to get dirty as the years went by. And that takes a lot more time to do. When you do stars in space, big constellations and what have you, the easiest 
way to do it is you just take a toothbrush and you spray a field of stars. Mm. Well, Russ, he just inked around each individual star. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, what are you doing? He says, well, how else are you going to get it right? So yeah. that, was, that was his perception and work ethic. Wow. So. That's really great. In continuity, so were Neil Adams and Dick Giordano, were they partners of equal standing in the company? Were they essentially like partners? Yeah, yeah, they were they were partners, absolutely. And I think the reason the partnership ended is because Dick wanted some justification for why the studio was run the way it was, spending more money than it needed to, and Neil just did not have one. And Dick, in frustration, said, well, I'm going to leave now, and I'm going to start my own studio with the comical and vaguely unfortunate name of Dick Art. <laughs> but ah. <laughs> That's the one he picked, D-I-K art. Uh-huh. Anyway, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, and you know, I mean, obviously, for the most part, broke up the work in Neil was the penciler, Dick was the inker, sometimes mm-hmm. have to pencil something. Um, and then while I was there, they got the contract from Charlton Comics to do the black and white Space 1999 and $6 million Man and Emergency Comics. Right. And that that was a lot of work, which then Neil had a lot of the young guys start ghosting him. So it was a ton of work to do. Everybody was busy doing stuff. And if you mm-hmm. find those, you know, you'll find Boss Jansen and Frank Springer and me, um, Bob Wyacek, Terry Austin, all these people that were working for Dick and working for Neil were all um, were what, drafted into doing those books. Oh, that's great. So that was good experience for you then. Well, it's never a good experience working for Neil Adams. But, oh, really? Uh, Tell us about that. That's interesting. Eh, eh. Suffice it to say that um, I haven't spoken to Neil Adams in 40 years, though I've been in many, many convention halls with him, and I know that my life is a much happier place if we never have a conversation again. Yeah, did, wow. Okay, did he yeah, teach cause... you at all? I mean, you talk about Giordano as, as the uh, mentor, but did you learn from Adams back in that early, early no, he period? Couldn't be, he couldn't. He, look, I'd say, hey, Neil, how do you do this? I'm not a teacher. And he'd just walk away. And Dick, Dick well, how do you do this? I said, oh, let me show you. Yeah, um, okay. And, uh, I mean, look, he's, he's a very polarizing person, but I'm, I'm very much on the negative pole. And, <laughs> okay. Like it's not like I keep it a secret. So. Right. No, I understand. And, that, and, that we, and we appreciate the honesty. That's great. Mike Nasser, you met him through those guys, through continuity? Yeah, yeah. He was, you know, he idolized. Well, he, his style was obviously based on Neil's. And uh-huh. he was up there doing work. And well, see, what happened was I read an interview by Gil Kane, certainly one of the all-time greats, in Alter Ego number 10 with a like a grease pencil portrait of Gil Kane on the cover by Marie Severn. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And in it, he said, I would have been an inker first, learn the business, and then a penciler. I went, oh, okay, well, then I guess I'll practice inking since I've got the world's greatest inker here. Mm-hmm. You know, or, I mean, you know, a taste vary, but, but, you know, I loved Neil's work and Dick was the inker, so of course Dick was the world's best inker. And so I started to practice inking and uh, Mike had these samples. And I said, would you mind if I ink these on vellum? Mm-hmm. And he went, no, every ink the whole real thing. I went, really? And so I did. I was like 16 and a half at the time or something, or maybe mm-hmm. 17. 
I inked them. He showed them to his editor, Jerry Conway, mm. who hired him to draw his first job in the back of Commandy. It was like a, a six-pager called, appropriately enough, Tales of the Great Disaster. And <laughs> so Jerry hired me to ink it. So it's all of a sudden, we're a team. So so this, the, the second-rate Neil Adams is being inked by the second-rate Dick Giordano on this series. <laughs> and, you know, uh, then we went another one. That's pretty funny. Commandy to do and Batman and I got I got hooked up a lot with Mike which was great because I thought we we made sense together yeah yeah and you guys uh, meshed well yeah well like I said we were coming from the same source he's trying to be Neil I'm trying to be Dick yeah that makes sense that's really great actually Um, so then well and uh, how was Jerry Conway as an editor Uh, what was your impression of Conway back then well he gave me the cheapest rate in the business (laughs) so Uh When I found out that everybody else in the industry was making everybody else in the industry was making um, twenty three dollars a page, and I was making twenty a page, so uh-huh. I don't remember any problems or conflicts or anything with my uh, with Jerry at the time. I see right. Jerry now at conventions, and I I tease him a little about um, my original rate. Um, <laughs> see, the interesting thing is. If um, you're doing a comic book and you're getting a lousy 23 bucks a page, they just want it in. Right. If you're doing a job for an advertising agency and they're paying you $1,000 a page, everybody's got an opinion. Yeah. So as comic books, you know, it's like nobody pays attention to you in comic books, but if you're doing an advertising poster for a movie, now everybody's paying attention to you. So I think they were more than happy with just, is it in? Good. And I, I mean, obviously, the stuff can't be bad, but um, I think the stuff was good enough where it wasn't a problem when it showed up. Mm-hmm. So that was your entry into DC, and then through DC, then you got connected into doing Marvel stuff. Is, it, is that how that kind of went? Well, what happened was, is I have no idea how I was there, but I was at a party, maybe in Brooklyn, and I was, I pointed over to some guy, and I said, who's that? And they said, oh, that's Jim Starlin. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, that's Jack Sparling? Oh, right. kind of like work, yeah. Um, but it turned out to be Jim Starlin. And then, um, now you have to remember, all these guys, I'm 17, I'm 16, I'm 15. All these guys are 22, 23, 28, 30, 40, 50, which is why I know so many dead people, you know, because I knew Kurt Swan and Gene Colan and John Buscema and Gene and Julie Schwartz and all these people were 30, 40 years older than me when I met them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So so I don't honestly know what Jim had seen of my work, but at one point he walked up to me and he said, Hey, I'm doing this Avengers annual for Marvel. Do you want to ink it? No, I go, yeah. I mean, one, because I was happy to do the event get a job when I was happy to, to work with Starlin. But the other one was, I knew that if I got to Marvel, I would get to ink John Buscema and Gene Colan and, you know, all Jack Kirby, all those people that were only at Marvel. Right. And so I did this thing, and then they said, but it's, it's a, a two-parter. I went, great. You know, so I did, I did the two-in-one annual, and for the record, that's where Thanos fought the Avengers originally, not the Infinity Gauntlet. Right, yep. right, right. Yep. Absolutely. Um, those were great. Those were great issues. Yeah. Yeah. Classic. Well, thank you. I mean, you know, it's interesting that for 30 years, that thing was reprinted 15 times. Right. I'm going. I guess they like this, you know, because they just keep reprinting it. 
Yeah, that's um, cool. And then uh, I remember um, John Beatty, who's an inker, who's primarily known for working with uh, Mike Zek, um on Captain America and, sure. and uh, the wars. He uh, he told me, I, I'm not sure how much younger John is than me, but he told me when he saw the thing, when he bought the comic book, he thought that the name must have been an alias because he flattered me by saying it was so good he just couldn't be a new guy. Hmm. Um, and the thing is, is that when people meet me, I mean, now I'm, I'm a whopping 61 years old, so maybe it's going to trail off. But um, when people meet me very often, they go, how old are you? I go, 60. Yeah. How old were you when you did that job? I went, 19. Yeah, you know? young. Yeah. So they always assume, like, I must have been in my 30s at the time I was doing that stuff. <laughs> right. Because if you're doing, they're doing that stuff and you don't have your Medicare, Medicare card yet, that's, that's uh, unusual. And, yeah, and you know, there was a point where Trevor Von Eden and I did a job together, and we were the youngest people in comic books because he was like, I was like 19 and he was 18, and, and, you know, he had started working when he was 15 or 16 or something like that. So mm -hmm. we were the youngest guy. As a matter of fact, I remember Joe Orlando looking at me once kind of amused going, you know, we thought Williamson was young because he was probably in his early 20s when he was working at EC, but I was like... 16, 17, you know. Uh-huh, uh-huh. How fun. So then that's when you got connected into other Marvel books. Uh, it was through the Jim Starlin work. So, like, you and Michael Golden on Micronauts as well, right? Yeah, well, the reason that happened was because um, I inked him on a man-bat job. Mm. And, uh, oh, yeah, I know that one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and Michael liked it, and I guess he asked for me, um, mm -hmm. and then I got on this Micronauts thing for seven issues. Wow, that's cool. What was and that like was a it? big one, right? I mean, that I mean, that's when I noticed you. I, I mean, because that was those those issues with Golden were really something. I mean, I hadn't seen that was like a, a just knocked me out in, in terms of of because uh, uh, the book itself. Ah, but but the but the art was just so good and so different. It is. It was. Well, I mean, Mike Mike's a genius, and I followed it best I could. And looking back on it, on ret in retrospect, I didn't do it right. Um, really? That's, huh. that's not to say you can't enjoy it. It's just I look at it and think, oh, I took the wrong approach. Um, because I don't know if if Dick Giordano is the first one who really had this attitude and instilled it in me. Mm -hmm. But um, most inkers prior to Dick and me just did whatever they felt like. You know, like if you gave the job to Joe Kubert, it turned into a beautiful Joe Kubert job. And if you did right. it, it's... You know, and and Dick taught me, you know, change your approach. Give it, give it the respect it deserves. Every job shouldn't be inked the same way. Well, I once asked Murphy Anderson, "What's your ink? How do you change it?" And he goes, "Well, I kind of just do my thing." But I don't kind of do my thing. I try to get into the head of the person who drew it. I want to give them the respect that I would want if I had drawn it, and not have somebody go. Well, I don't care what you want. I'm going to do it my way. So I always worked hard to try and figure out what the appropriate approach was for any given new uh, pencil I worked with. Mm -hmm. And I I was doing the right approach with Golden. But looking back on it, it's still lovely, lovely stuff because it's mostly Mike's credit. But I did it wrong. And if I had a chance to do it again, I'd do it a whole other way. Hmm. Yeah, it's Did interesting ever, because oh. with that, it shows you're really flexible. And that's interesting that you that Woody was one of your influences because a lot of people say when he inks something, 
it turns into a Hollywood picture at the end of it. And, Absolutely. Uh, but that's yeah. not what that's not what his influence was. His so it was Dick's influence about it. When Dick inked Neil Adams, he didn't ink him the same way he inked Carmen. You know, the same way he didn't ink Mike Sikowski. So Dick tried flexible within his limitations. That I think I'm about as flexible an inker as I've ever seen, and I, I guess I've just flattered myself. But but I, I think that's the reason I got Marvel Universe. Right. It's because Mark Grunwald, the editor who put it together, he said he didn't want all the books, to, uh, all the entries to look homogenous. He wanted the penciler. When he got you know, John Byrne to draw this character because John was associated with that, he wanted it to be John Byrne when it was coming back. When he got Mike Zeck to draw the Punisher, it should look like a Mike Zeck when it was done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What I, you know, I didn't even remember this story. I, I read it in one of my own interviews as I was rereading it. Um, I I had, there was a magazine called Comic Scene. Yeah. It did Bob Greenberger who went on to DC Comics. Mm-hmm. And I said, badgering Bob to do something about anchors because anchors are always getting screwed and dissed. And, what. Um, and so finally what he put together was a round table with Klaus Jansen, Tom Palmer, Bob Layton, and myself. Wow. And he gave all of us, Bob Greenberger gave all of us a Mike Zeck Hulk figure to ink, mm-hmm. which we did, the same one. And then he reproduced all four of them next to each other to show the differences in what was going on. And when Mark Runewald saw mine, he felt mine was truest to the intention. So that's mm. why he offered me Marvel Universe. And he said, so he had me ink like three of them, like a, a Milgram and two Ron Wilsons or a Brian Postman or something. And when it was all done and I handed it to him, he, he said, okay, well, we're doing this encyclopedia. How many do you want to do? I said, all of them. Yeah. Why would I say anything else? You uh-huh. know? And that's how I wound up being on that book for about 20 years. So you inked the, all of Marvel Universe? Ex- uh, probably 99.5%. Wow, well, that's amazing. How many different artists run, do you think you did all together on that? Uh, on that, I don't know. But I think I have between uh, 400 and 450 different pencilers I've worked with over my wow. career. Mm-hmm. Probably because of that series. Um and, and, you know, I, I made them a, the joke once that I have the um, Guinness World Record for most pencilers and most characters. And so now I see it was like written. Joe Rubenstein, uh, you know, owner of the Guinness World Record. <laughs> it's like, well, I, I finally called, uh, wrote Guinness. <laughs> I said, hey, you, you want to put me in your book? And they went, we don't care. So, so in I saw that over and over in uh, as I was researching this, and it, yeah. it's it's it's, it's, I mean, it's everywhere it's, that it's a, an accepted fact that you're yeah, in the Guinness I mean, Book of World Records. I got it, but it doesn't exist. So, <laughs> That's hilarious. Now, because if you figure, so I did Marvel Universe, which means I did every single character Marvel ever had. Yes. I worked at DC on Superman for seven years, Batman for three years, the Justice League. You know, it's like plus all the different pencilers. Yeah. So I've probably done more characters, I, I hate to say this because it's, it's practically heresy, than like Jack Kirby. Right, you know? right. Well, I mean, all of Marvel Universe and Justice League by itself, that's a lot of characters. Yeah, absolutely. So, And it, it, it was the best job an inker ever had because I would solicit people I always wanted to work with, like Joe Kubert and uh, you know, uh, John Bolton, 
people who never, uh, uh, John Sever, people who never let anybody else ink their work, and I was inking them, and it was great. How was um, working with uh, uh, Mark Grunewald and Jim Shooter back then? Mark Grunewald loved comics more than anything in life. He just, yeah. wa- and that's why he did Marvel Universe, because he wanted it to be consistent and make sense and just be a cohesive thing that we could all work with. And that's why he did Marvel Universe, and then he got the idea, I guess, let's get the fans to pay for it, instead of it to be some sort of a encyclopedia we just print out, or a handout, who knows. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think, because Marvel Comics had changed so radically after Shooter left, that it became, uh, you didn't have a champion anymore. I had a champion. If, if they lost my check, or something was going on that, that I needed help, I could go to Jim Shooter and say, can you help me? And he would. And I'm not saying I'm the only one he did that for. After Jim was ousted, there was nobody to do that. And Mark had to start being a um, hatchet man. And I think it it gave him a heart attack. Yeah, Um, it wore him down, huh? And I know know that Jim Shooter is a highly polarizing figure. And um, I all I can tell you is, he was always great to me. I, I I can understand why some people had problems with him. Mm-hmm. He was a decent human being to me. And, and I mean, he would say things like, you know, you don't sweat much for an inker from Brooklyn. You don't think that was a compliment or something. I mean, he thought it was okay. Mm-hmm. You know, things like that. Um, but I also saw him have clashes with uh, mostly writers, but not exclusively because they had egos, and he wasn't going to put up with it. And there was a guy. All right, there was a character. Okay, I, I want to know if I should make this a blind item or a real. All right, real. Gerber Gerber invented Howard the Duck. Yes. And then he left, and Mantlo wrote it for a while. Right. And then Gerber wanted to come back, and they said, "Okay, great." And he said, "Well, I'm going to throw out everything Mantlo did." And they said, "Fine, do your own starts." Says, yeah, but I'm going to have to like discredit them or anyone you can't do that you can ignore them you can make believe they never happen but you can't like start insulting the books and gerber said well then i won't do it and shooter said then you won't do it so or 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 for instance um john Buscema did a comic book adaptation of a, a, a david bowie movie called labyrinth yeah and so sure. they put out a labyrinth coloring book and um Shooter said, well, where are we getting the artwork from it? He says, oh, we're just, just tracing John Buscema's pencils from the comic book, and we don't have to pay him. And Shooter said, yeah, you do have to pay him. Right. You know, and I doubt that Jim called up John Buscema and said, I just championed you. I think he just said, call John Buscema up and tell him he's getting paid. So when when marvel had a christmas party it was jim shooter paying not marvel the presents coming out were marvel it was a lot more fun it was a lot more wacky but i have to admit that if i were doing a book directly under jim shooter as my editor and not a step away i'd go oh shit this is going to be trouble because he's going to find this problem and that problem he's going to make right. drift this and he did and and he felt you know somebody's got to be the empire umpire Somebody's got to be the last word, and he felt if the girl was ugly, make her pretty. And I'd say, well, why, do you, why is your opinion of the girl better than mine? I think she's pretty. 
Mm-hmm. And you go, become the umpire, and I, I call it. I go, okay. I mean, you know, it's like I've had employees over the years, and if they said to me, well, why do you think I should change this background? I go, because I'm the boss, and I think I need, I need it my way, not yours. Right. So. Yeah, I spoke with uh, Ron Wilson once, and he he said the same thing you said. He said, Shooter was good to me. You know, yeah, a lot of people may, might have some issue with him, but he was great to me and that he missed working for him. So, yeah, it's actually, it is refreshing to hear that from you, and, and uh, I appreciate how candid you, you were about that. So, um, Joe, I, I wanted to talk about a couple of specific series that you, uh, uh, short runs that you had uh, during that Marvel era that I think are important to a lot of people. Uh, the first one would be the, uh, the uh, Roger Stern, um, John Byrne, uh, and Joseph Rubenstein, Captain America, which is one of my favorite runs of Captain America ever. Um, what did you, my understanding is you like that work a lot. I like doing it a lot. Yeah. Um, and you're proud of it. Yeah. I mean, I think so. I, I, I was reading John's, uh, X-Men. They looked great and, and, you know, it made John a star. And then they asked me to do Captain Mark and I thought that was great. And then I saw John's pencils and I thought, oh, there's potential here that Terry has not been exploiting. That Terry's been inking it the way he thinks it should be inked. Okay. And I got a different idea on how it should be inked. Um, and more often than not, you know, in these polls people take, it's like, uh, all right, so it's either me or Terry is John's best inker. You know, they're always saying that. Um, so I, I was proud of that work. I thought John was doing a fantastic job. I thought Roger was writing wonderful stuff. You know, you you spend the majority of your life alone in a room doing this shit, and it's like, do I have anything to show for it? Am I proud of this? When this comes out, will I be horrified or disappointed or I wanted this to be colored right and it didn't get colored right? Or, you know, so, like, it's it's one thing to take the money and run, but I'd like to have something I'm proud of after everything is said and done. So I thought that book was a combination of good stuff. And then um, I was making it, I was, I was working very hard to get the covers to be special on oh, it. Oh, yeah, and they were. Yeah, like, like the one where he's standing with the coffin and barren blood in the foreground. And oh, all that's that. so good, um, yeah. It was me deciding to do that effect. John drew it, of course. It was his concept. But I said, you know, I can make this more gothic. And so I, I talked Marvel into spending the money to go get the effect made. I don't honestly remember if I asked John's permission to do it. Maybe. I don't know. But so Talk wanted, a little bit about taking Neil Adams out of John Byrne's work on this project. Do you know what I'm talking about? No, he's putting it in. Well, he, Byrne, what Byrne had said, my understanding was that for his first half of or part of his career, he was he was trying to do John. Um, um, he was Neil trying Adams. to do Neil Adams to some degree, and right. that you were trying in that when you had heard him say that, and you were trying to take a lot of the Neil Adams influence out of it as you were inking it. Is that right? Oh, I was trying to put it in. You were trying to put it in on back, back in first. First half of his career, he tried to emulate Neil Adams. For the second half of his career, he tried to not look like Neil Adams. Well, the fact is, is that the Neil Adams was ingrained, and I saw it, and I thought, okay, I'm going to push this 10% more towards the Neil Adams stuff. Now, John, oh, has cool. right, John has expressed the opinion that he didn't like that. Okay, so 
And if, and if John had out and out called me up and said, stop doing that, I would have stopped doing that. But that never got to me. So I was trying to make it a little bit more realistic, whatever that means, a little bit more organic, organic than the way Terry inks, which is his own stylized thing. Um, and I was hard, working hard to make it as good as I could. Now, the, the last issue that we did together was supposedly the all pencil issue except for the last page that was inked by uh special thanks to Joe Rubenstein, inker of today. And the reason it says that is because the caption on the page says today, right? So uh John re- drew it all in graphite, I guess to prove that we don't need inkers in this world. And what <laughs> I did was when I saw the stats, they were so shitty that I sat there in the offices for several hours unpaid touching them up, filling in the blacks, making the lines that were dropping out firmer so that they reproduce. So the all John Byrne issue that didn't need an inker was helped by this inker. Um, and then, so I'm working on the book, and then all of a sudden I'm told that John and Roger quit. And like, hey, where did everybody go? Nobody even called me to say we're leaving or you want to do something else with us. And I stayed on Captain America for like one more issue um, and then I was gone to do something else. Mm. Obviously, you like some characters more than others in terms of, of inking or drawing them because uh, of the details and things. Is, is Captain America a fun character for you to, to work on? Yeah, he's okay. His, his shield's a pain in the ass. I'm fine with Cap, and the fact of the matter is, is that, that people would compliment me on my um, chain mail. But, but like everything else, you don't have to reinvent the wheel Woody inked an issue of Gene Colan on Captain America, which was kind of amazing, and he did the chain mail the way I did it. But Woody got it from his influence, which was how Foster uh, sure. on Valiant when he wore chain mail. Right. You know. So so I do so I would, I do the chain mail and I try and get it right, and I you know I try to get everything right and as good as I can. I like the the joke is I like. My favorite character to do is the Hulk because he's naked. It's like no details, no swords, no epilep. It's just he's naked and he's got shorts. We're happy. And then there's the Silver Surfer. He's sleek. He's got some muscles. We're done. Who do I hate? Iron Man, Galactus, War Machine, Jack of Hearts. You know, it's, it's, I mean, they're, they're fine characters, but I'd rather not spend all that time on all the little filigree and bric a brac. I'd rather just, you know, Ink a nice oh. face. Jack of Hearts has to be just a nightmare. <laughs> and I worked on him too with George Freeman. Mm. And you, but you also did Silver Surfer what, with Marshall Rogers. Yep. And so that I, was perfect for you. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting thing because you know memory is very elastic and it distorts, and you never know the truth. But um, I seem to remember inking all of the first issue of Silver Surfer with Marshall Rogers in like four days. And that's because it was all a little figure on a little board and a lot of space. It's like, (laughs) it seemed like that thing got done pretty fast. But then again, I was also stuck with Galactus. (laughs) Well, this has been awesome insight into the life of Joseph Rubenstein. Join us again next week as we conclude part two of this famous Bronze Age and Modern Age Inker on the Comic Book Historians podcast with Alex Grant and Jim Thompson. Stay tuned.